Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to this BTOG webinar on updates from World Lung and ESMO 2022. Thank you very much for joining us. A little bit of the usual background bits and pieces. Uh, my name is Tom Newsom Davis. I'm a medical oncologist at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London, um, and I'm the vice chair of BTOG. Um, first thing to say is BTOG is sponsored, but the sponsors of BTOG events don't have any role whatsoever in the planning content or delivery of anything discussed today. Um, but that being said, we are grateful uh, for the support of our sponsors this evening. So, as I say, welcome um, from everyone and uh, thank you again for joining us. We do appreciate we had to change the date of this uh, webinar from uh, last Monday, which was of course a Queen's funeral, to today. So thank you for making additional time in your diaries to join us. Um, Regarding BTOG, as you know, the people who run the show really are Dawn and Gina. If you'd like to know anything about BTOG, please contact them on the email or web address here. And if you're not a member, why aren't you a member? Then please do join up. We would love you to be part of our organization. So a couple of housekeeping. We really enjoy the questions. I think they're actually the best part of the whole thing with the greatest respect to my various speakers. So please do um, put questions in. You can do that on the panel through your web browser. You can do it with your name attached if you're feeling brave, or you can do it anonymously if you're feeling shy. Um, and we're gonna have 15 minutes at the end for questions and discussions. Um, you can get CPD points for your RCP diary. You've got the approval code there and you've got up to four weeks uh, to do that. Uh, but we please ask you to send us your feedback. We want to constantly improve the uh, educational content we provide you guys from BTOG. So all your comments and feedback is greatly, greatly appreciated. Right, so let's get on with it. Uh, we're going to be talking about an update from World Lung and ESMO this year. World Lung was in Austria in August and uh, ESMO was in Paris just two weeks ago. I'm joined by four superb, well, three superb speakers and myself, um, and we're going to go through screening for lung cancer, starting with uh, Professor David Baldwin, moving on to surgery for lung cancer uh, and other thoracic malignancies with uh, David Waller, then on to early stage non-small cell lung cancer with Yvonne Summers, and then I'm going to finally wrap up with a metastatic. We're going to have a chat and we'll all be done and dusted by half past six. And you may be saying, but hang on, it said ESMO and World Lung in an hour. That's an hour and 15 minutes, but that's inflation for you. Um, for those of you disappointed that I'm not Sanjay Popat, unfortunately Sanjay was not able to make uh, today's one, which is why you have me both as a chair and a speaker. I'm very sorry about that. So without any further ado, I think we will move on to uh, our talk about screening with uh, David uh, Baldwin. Uh, so Professor Baldwin is a respiratory physician at the university's hospitals in Nottingham. He does a huge number of other roles. He's a friend of BTOG. If I went on about his other roles, we'd be here for the, for the whole um, evening. So instead of doing that, I'm going to move straight on and ask David to take us through the updates on screening from World Lung and from um, ESMO this year. David, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you very much and delighted to be involved with uh, yet another uh, BTOG uh, webinar. And um, I'm really looking forward to the, the meeting in April when we, we're meeting face to face. Um, so I'm going to talk uh, primarily about the World Lung Cancer Conference. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend ESMO. And in, in fact, um, the screening activity in World Lung is, is always uh, very, very complicated and detailed. Um, 
we had a screening workshop which was run on the uh, Friday and um, normally the screening workshop is a little bit of a, a sort of um, same-ish uh, topic type workshop where the same things are discussed uh, pretty much every time and then they tend to then go through the whole program and uh, this has sort of been criticized as a as a rather repetitive so on this occasion we were tasked with the with the um, uh, difficult um, process of trying to get a completely unique program which didn't really cover a lot of the things that were done in the main program we didn't achieve that but the comment from the reviewer at the end of the day was that the majority of topics discussed today that's on the Friday were our innovative concepts uh, which are in development so that was really good so I'm going to just go through one or two of the things, the highlights of that uh, of that screening workshop, which was a closed workshop. So um, quite good to to be able to spread that about a bit. The the first thing is um, the description of a new program. I'm just going to mention this as a sort of um, really get people thinking, uh, and then something about uh, quality assurance and technology. There was a section on personalised risk assessment, and also uh, diagnostic workup, including incidental findings. The, um, the, the first then dealing with the, the Taiwan lung cancer screening in never smoker trial, the talent trial. And as you can see the um, inclusion criteria there, um, usual sort of age range of 55 to 75, but never smoking people who had got one or other of these uh, risk factors. It made a major risk factor being family history of lung cancer, but also environmental tobacco smoking history any chronic lung disease, and this concept of a cooking index, which is a, a feature of how long people are exposed to potentially um, fumes from cooking. Uh, and they had to have a negative chest X-ray as well. And this was the, um, they were, these were the sort of top line results. First, firstly, um, of their 12,000 cases, 313 were T naught uh, lung cancers, that is to say, not um, invasive adenocarcinomas. So in, interestingly, the way, the way they define this, um, and this is, has, can be a feature of a number of screening uh, projects that are, are come from Eastern Asia, where you have a, a, quite a few people that have um, included in their lung cancer rate uh, this T0 stage, um, which, is, which is, as you can see, adenocarcinoma in situ in um, 58 of the uh, total number of lung cancers there in terms of the, the detection. So we have um, um, a sort of issue here that um, potential overdiagnosis is occurring um, and we're not completely sure, I'm not completely sure yet uh, as to what the, the whole truth of this is because there is there are some other data coming from Taiwan suggesting that the mortality rate um, has not um, has not improved, which is which is of course the way we measure the impact of CT screening. These were the conclusions from the um, the take home messages uh, from from the presentation, and you know a very very high um, lung cancer detection rate, um, ninety six point five percent zero to one. Uh, lung cancer family history being um, an important risk factor for 
uh, development of lung cancer and selecting people for screening. And the plans for going ahead with a nationwide low-dose CT screening study, both for heavy smokers in the conventional way, but also never smokers with risk factors, particularly lung cancer. So it's also particularly the family history. Very interesting, uh, but we just need to watch carefully as to what the overall results will be. QA and technology is a really big thing now. It is a developing area, uh, and there are a lot, quite a few uh, present presentations, both in the main symposia, but also on the CT screening workshop, about how one incorporates a variety of different uh, assistance uh, to the reporting process, and also how one uses um, artificial intelligence in interpretation of the results. So it's both detection, which is something like computer-aided detection of nodules, in widespread use now, and how that interacts with behavior of the radiologist when they're reporting, uh, but also um, AI interpretation of nodules predicting risk and predicting future, future risk. We also heard about a number of things that are looking at the QA of radiologists in particular, and our own program, the Perfex program, which is uh, based on a very similar system to that used in breast cancer screening was also presented and um, generated quite a lot of discussion. And then interestingly, from the ISLC um, LCAP group, there was this education resource that was presented, which is more about, in fact, um, trying to make sure that the workup, the downstream workup is improved by providing example cases, which I thought was very interesting coming um, from the US, as we know that there have been some uh, criticisms about how much in further investigation is done on some of the US screening studies. There's then a lot of discussion about personalized risk using the uh, baseline scan to define the future risk and then tailor the, these screening intervals according to that risk, uh, using blood biomarkers with the low-dose CT and machine learning approaches to defining CT interval, all very much theoretical. In the general sessions, there was one very interesting study, I thought, looking at the NLST metachronous uh, second lung, uh, primary lung cancers, also with a very good prognosis, often at early stage and well worth looking for. Um, there are reports from many countries on screening pilots and programs from all over the world, really getting going a lot in different individual pilots, although not that many full national programs and not much mention of those countries that are decided against screening, notably France and Australia has been quite prominent. There was a focus very much on optimization and learning from the programs, and it's great to see lots and lots of data coming from these programs. And an excellent um, presentation from the summit uh, study by Sam Jaynes on the uh, incidental findings problem. And then finally, I think one of the most important studies was, was this study, the Yorkshire Enhanced Stop Smoking Study run by Rachel Murray from uh, the University of Nottingham in collaboration with the Yorkshire Lung Cancer Screening Trial. And the main uh, aim of this study was to present these, um, this information to patients about their own lungs, showing their emphysema and another panel showing their coronary artery calcification and seeing if this added anything to a very intensive co-located smoking cessation service. The bottom line was that there was no real difference between the intervention and usual care, but usual care was very good. As you can see, the point seven day validated point prevalent abstinence was around 30% at three months, and this was continued until 12 months. 
a real improvement in potential outcomes from CT screening and also quite cost effective. And the, in, the conclusion really was to ensure that um, from now on there should be co-located integrated high level uh, smoking cessation. So I hope that's given you a flavour uh, of what the World Lung, Can Lung Cancer Conference is about, as you can't really cover this in 15 minutes, but I hope that's been helpful. Thank you very much, David. I'm just waiting for my camera to come back on. Maybe it's not going to. Um, and you get, uh, you get gold marks for uh, not going over time. So well done for that. Um, so that's the aspects of screening covered. We're going to move on to surgery and welcome uh, David Waller, also a friend of BTOG, because everyone's a friend of BTOG, um, as far as I can tell. Um, and David is a cardiothoracic surgeon uh, at Bart's Hospital, uh, formerly of Denfield Leicester, which is of course where BTOG originally came. Um, and David's going to take us through uh, changes and advances in surgery from Weld Lung um, and ESMO this year, David. Uh, the floor is yours. Thank you very much for dedicating your evening, or at least an hour of it, uh, to us. Thanks very much, Tom. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, 20 years since well, I was the founder member of BTOG with Ken O'Byrne, I'm glad to see it's still going strong and developing all these new technologies. Can I have the first slide, please? I can't see the slides, so I'll have to just assume that you're going at the same time. So I'm going to talk to you about a major advance in surgery um, which was partly presented at the World Lung Meeting in um, Vienna, but also um, referred to a trial that was presented at the American Association of Thoracic Surgery. Um, I can't see the slide, so I'm hoping you're showing the first slide. Um, and you go on to the second slide. So the two sl uh, studies I want to talk about are a randomized trial um, from Japan, and a randomized trial from America, and both of these have challenged the um, assumed gold standard that lobectomy is the gold standard for stage one lung cancer. So we've got the Japanese JCOG study, which was a randomized trial looking at lobectomy versus segmentectomy for uh, histologically proven, and this was done on interoperative frozen section, stage uh, T1N0 non-small cell lung cancer. And this was uh, presented at the American Association of Thoracic Surgery and has subsequently uh, been um, presented and published now in, in Lancet Oncology. And it showed uh, significant uh, benefits in terms of overall survival for segmentectomy compared to lobectomy. At the World Lung uh, cancer meeting in Vienna. The Americans presented a similar trial, but this was um, lobectomy versus either segmentectomy or wedge resection, uh, but it had a similar outcome which showed uh, non-inferiority for sublobar resection in, again, histologically proven non-small cell lung cancer with intraoperative frozen section that showed no evidence of lymph node metastases. Uh, randomized trial, randomizing um, patients with histologically proven non-small cell lung cancer with intraoperative frozen section analysis of lymph nodes that were confirmed to be stage 1A. Next slide. Uh, 
as you can see there were 357 patients randomized to lobectomy and just hit the, the next button 20% of these were by thoracotomy, 80% by minimum invasive surgery, either VATS or robotic. Uh, next button. And very, very importantly, 58% of the sublobar resections were by wedge resection. This is a very important point. So this was unlike the Japanese study, which was anatomical segmentectomy as the experimental group. This American study allowed the surgeon providing they achieved adequate macroscopic margin to perform a wedge resection. Next slide. The randomization was stratified by both tumor size, smoking status, and the histology, whether it's adeno or squamous. Next slide. The groups were similar, they had similar complications, similar air leak, and similar hospital mortality. Next slide. Now, going back to the Japanese group, they looked at the difference in lung function between sublobar and lobectomy, and there were similar findings in the American study. Both groups found a very small um, but significant benefit from segmentectomy. The important point being, it wasn't as large a benefit as they powered the study for. They assumed that uh, doing a sublobar section would preserve much more lung function, and it didn't. Next slide. In the Japanese uh, study, they showed there was increased local recurrence after a sublobar section. Next slide. However, in the American study, they didn't find that. They also found there was no difference in non-cancer-related deaths. Interestingly, in the American study, over 50% of the recurrence was distant. And this is in stage one lung cancer, don't forget. Next slide. The Japanese study showed no difference uh, in disease-free survival. And this is possibly because although there was a higher occurrence, and next button, and next button, it appeared that those who had disease recurrence were more able to be treated, both with radiotherapy, possibly ablation, and also salvage surgery. So despite uh, higher recurrence, there was no difference in overall disease-free survival. Next slide. And similarly, in the American study, the CalGB, overall survival was no worse with a sub-lobar resection. If we look at the um, follow-up, it was extended to seven years. So this was a a long follow-up of these patients and showed no difference in disease-free survival. Next slide. Next slide, please. And next. 
So in the Japanese study, there was no difference in disease-free survival, but they actually showed a long-term benefit for sublobar segmentectomy in terms of overall survival. So there was not only, it was no worse than lobectomy, but long-term survival was better with more lung preserved. Next slide. And similarly, in the American study, the medium follow-up of seven years, the non-inferiority significance boundary was not crossed. So there was similar overall survival for sub-lobar uh, resection, including wedge against lobectomy. In fact, just tantalizingly showing that maybe the sub-lobar group had a better longer-term survival that didn't quite reach significance. Next, next button. And you see the hazard ratio. Um, was just suggesting there may well be a uh, survival benefit. Next slide. Okay, just hit the next button and the next. So these two large randomized controlled trials that we've been waiting for for nearly a decade showed that lobectomy is no longer the gold standard for histologically proven stage one uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And in fact, it could be that it's actually detrimental to long-term survival. Next. And the staggering finding from the American study was that when possible, so if you could achieve a clear margin, a wedge resection and the nodal, uh, together with nodal dissection to exclude N1 disease was sufficient treatment for stage 1A non-small cell lung cancer. Now that is, uh, was a stunning message and it was one of the most significant findings in lung cancer surgery for probably, well probably 25 years since the lung cancer study group. Next please. Of course not all lesions are amenable to a wedge if they're more central, but in those patients a seg anatomical segmentectomy is at least as good as lobectomy, and in fact may have a longer term survival benefit. Next. Now, the answer, the question about whether a segmentectomy versus a wedge is required, when a wedge is possible, is being addressed now by the Japanese oncology group in the ANSWER trial, and that again will take several years to produce a result, but they're randomizing these resectable patients who are suitable to a wet for a wedge, either to wedge or segmentectomy. Next slide. Next. So it is possible now that to justify uh, wedge resection as, a, as both a diagnostic and a therapeutic surgery for stage one lung cancer, which of course opens up the possibility of treating people with poor lung function. The days of doing a VATS wedge in a frozen section proceeding to lobectomy are gone. There's no need to do that. Next. And possibly there's no need to do a VATS lobectomy because if it's a bigger tumour, it may not be suitable for VATS. If it's a smaller tumour, it may, can be treated by either a wedge or a segmentectomy now. So again, this is a massive change to the way we approach lung cancer. Next. And of course, for complex segmentectomy, so a more difficult 
unisegment resection of the lower lobe, for example. This is where robotic surgery has a big advantage over VATS. It's much more technically easier to uh, conserve lung tissue using robotics, and it may well be a justification for a wider use of robotic thoracic surgery. Next. It may also be uh, ne less necessary to confirm the preoperative diagnosis if we're only taking a wedge or a segment rather than a lobe. So we may, it may change our approach to the suspicious lung nodule. Next. Of course, it calls into question the need for uh, biopsy techniques such as navigational bronchoscopy if the lesion is otherwise resectable by a wedge. Next. Of course, it's assumed from these trials that it can't be applied to node positive disease because they intentionally excluded node positive disease in their protocols. Next. But it doesn't seem logical that removing more lung would be needed to treat nodal metastases, whereas we know there are targeted and systemic therapies that are intended for systemic spread. And finally, next. And of course, these findings really excited the clinical oncologists in the audience in Vienna because they thought, well, serotactic radiotherapy is similar to a wedge. So if you can treat it by wedge, then why not treat with radiotherapy? Well, that may be true. And that's certainly one of the discussion points we could address this evening. Thank you very much. Apologies for the technical problems. Anyway, thank you very much. I think you did it admirably, given the fact you couldn't see the slides. Um, and I, and I apologise unreservedly for failing to remember that, not failing to mention that you were indeed a founder member of BTOC. Um, so thank you very much. Um, I, I've, um, I, I have so many questions regarding those few studies, I've been scribbling them down. Um, if the audience have questions, please do uh, pop them into the uh, your web browser. They will appear as if by magic uh, on my screen and I can ask uh, them for you. So we're, we're still in time, which is, I think, probably a, a BTOL webinar first. So I'm delighted to uh, ask Yvonne uh, Summers to come up the stage of it. Yvonne is a medical oncologist at the Christie. And normally when we come to the early non-small cell lung cancer talk, it's a bit boring and it's, you know, one or two talks. But early stage lung cancer is the, the poster boy or girl, poster person um, of uh, lung cancer competence. There is so much going on in the adjuvant and the new adjuvant setting. And Yvonne has the slightly unenviable task of trying to distill that into just 15 minutes without repetition, hesitation, or deviation. Uh, Yvonne, the, uh, the floor is yours, and I hope you can see your slides. Thanks, Tom. And, and I make no apologies for making this very much a medical oncologist's view of um, early stage disease. And I hope very much that I can stick to the 15 minutes, but I don't think I'm going to make any promises here. And I would also say that I'm absolutely going to be focusing on the uh, big randomized studies, which are going to potentially impact more, most on clinical practice. Although clearly there were a number of um, non-randomized phase two studies, which had very interesting data in this arena also. Those are my disclosures. So the first study to discuss is the four-year update of the ADORA study. So just to remind you, this is the adjuvant osimertinib study for patients with completely resected stage 1b to 3a disease. Patients could have chemotherapy if it was applicable to them. And they were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to either receive 
osimertinib for three years or placebo for three years, with the primary endpoints being disease-free survival in the stage two and stage three patients, and then the key secondary endpoints relating to disease-free survival in the overall population um, and overall survival and some health-related quality of life measures. It was important to note that CNS metastasis and CNS recurrence was a key area of interest. And at this time point, all patients within the study have had the opportunity to have three years of treatment. But it's also key to report that although this is four years follow up, the study is still far from mature. So if we look at the disease-free survival curves, the curve on the top left of your screen is the original data that was presented at ASCO two years ago. And you can see those really impressive, widely spaced curves for the stage two and stage three population with a hazard ratio of 0.17. If we now look to the top right of the screen, you can see those updated curves, which look remarkably similar. So now with four years follow up, you can see that for the first three to four years, those curves are very similar. With the disease-free survival, the median disease-free survival being 21.9 months in the placebo arm and 65.8 months in those on the osimertinib arm for the patients with stage two to stage three disease and a hazard ratio of 0.23. So the disease-free survival benefit clearly being confirmed with further maturity. And if, if you look at the subgroups on the bottom of the slide, you can see that that benefit is consistent across all of the subgroups that, was, that were um, looked at. And in particular, you can see for those that had adjuvant chemotherapy or otherwise still benefit maintained. So a clear benefit across the entire population. However, if we come to look at the different stages, stage 1b, 2 and 3, you can see that the curves are slightly different. So for the stage 1b patients, uh, the four-year disease-free survival rate, 80% for those receiving Aussie, 59% for those receiving placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.41. So even with stage 1b disease, a nearly 60% reduction in the risk of recurrence for osimertinib versus placebo. And with the curves of the stage 2 and stage 3 that you can see there with the hazard ratios 0.34 for stage 2 and 0.2 for stage 3a. However, I think it is important to look at the shape of the curves. So you can see for the stage 1b curve, the um, osimertinib arm does seem to be plateauing. But for those with the stage 2 and the stage 3, at the 36 month point, you can see that perhaps that curve is beginning to dip a little. And remember, 36 months is the point at which the osimertinib stops. So I think there is a key question for us about what is happening when the osimertinib stops. Is there more recurrence occurring at that point? And what is the follow up that we do, particularly in terms of screening with scans from three months onwards? There's some clinical questions that we have to think about with regard to the patients that are treated, but clearly the benefit is very substantial. And if you look particularly in those with CNS disease, you can see that bottom curve at the bottom, that the rates of CNS recurrence are actually much smaller for those with osimertinib compared to those on placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.24. And in terms of the pattern of disease recurrence, you can see from that bottom right-hand graph that the patients are recurring in lung, lymph nodes, and CNS with the rates of CNS recurrence, of course, less for those on osimertinib compared to those um, receiving placebo. 
So some real recognition that the benefits that were originally reported with adjuvant osimertinib have been uh, persistent at four years follow-up. The studies are still not quite as mature as we'd like them to be. We have some questions about overall survival and what's going to happen with these patients with longer follow-up, but I think there's still no doubt in my mind that uh, osimertinib is a standard of care for patients with stage 1b to 3 completely resected um, uh, non-small cell lung cancer with EGF mutations. Um, there are some questions about what are the follow-up for those patients uh, and of course how we screen for CNS disease but the the changes that we've made to our practice are uh, consistent and should continue. So moving from EGFR to patients with resected non-small cell lung cancer in the immunotherapy setting, we saw at ESMO an update of overall survival from IMPER010. So remember, this is patients with resected, completely resected stage 1b to 3a non-small cell lung cancer. All of the patients in IMPER010 had had adjuvant chemotherapy and were then randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to receive one year of atezolizumab or best supportive care. And we'd previously seen data presented on disease-free survival. Uh, but here we see data presented on overall survival and in particular some key subgroups. So of course we have access to adjuvant uh, atezolizumab in England for patients with completely resected stage 2 to stage 3 disease with pdl one of greater than 50%. And you can see the overall survival curve on the right hand side for that group that we're clinically treating at the moment. The median overall survival has not been reached in either arm, but you can see that the um, three-year time point the median, the median overall survival being nearly 90% for those receiving um, adjuvant atezolizumab compared to 77% in those in the placebo arm. And those curves really um, being maintained out to the 60 months that you can see. And the hazard ratio 0.42. For those with pdl one 1% or more, the hazard ratio 0.71, so that little bit higher and crossing one. So again, these studies are still quite immature, but reassuring to see that the benefit in that greater than 50% stage two to stage three disease um, being um, uh, demonstrated in terms of overall survival with further follow-up. And in terms of toxicity, you can see that there were no great surprises in terms of adverse event reporting. And I thought what was interesting was that about 12% of patients receiving atezolizumab required corticosteroids, which certainly reflects our clinical practice that there is that sort of rate of immune-related adverse events which require um, intervention. So no new safety signals and a clear trend to improvement in overall survival, particularly in the group that we are clinically using um, atezolizumab in clinical practice at present. So moving from atezolizumab to the PEARL study, which many of us participated in in England and the UK. So this is adjuvant pembrolizumab, very similar study in, in that it's completely resected patients with non-small cell lung cancer, stage 1b to 3a any pdl one expression. Patients in this study did not need to have adjuvant chemotherapy, so a slight difference, difference to the IMPER-010 study. And patients were again randomized to either receive one year of PEMBRO or placebo with the uh, primary and secondary endpoints that you can see at the bottom of the slide. 
Now, the key area of interest at the presentation at ESMO was the outcomes in terms of disease-free survival by subgroup, because there had been at the previous presentation um, not quite the consistent story we'd, that we'd seen with the IMPER-010 study of increasing benefit according to PDL one And you can see from the Kaplan-Meier curves, the, those curves are split, but for the PDL one greater than 50%, hazard ratio is 0.82. Um, and the confidence intervals unfortunately cross one. There was a lot of um, analysis of the details of each of the subgroup. And if I can draw your attention to the fact that if you look at the placebo group in the study, so the blue line, you can see that at the time points depicted, so the 12, 24 and 36 months, the timelines for the placebo, they, the percentages for the placebo are higher. So 74, 67, 57 compared to, for example, in the 1 to 49%, 62, 54, 44. So the placebo arm seems to be um, performing better than we would anticipate for the PDL1 greater than 50%. And in the exploration of the subgroups, it became clear that the patients on the placebo arm in that group, there were many more of them who were N0. So there's probably an imbalance, which is um, resulting in a higher performance of the placebo arm for the greater than 50% rather than it being a genuine uh, lack of benefit in that patient group. And again, when we come to look at the serious ad the adverse event reporting for the study, very similar um, to the results that we've seen previously, and about 10%, 10 to 12% of patients having discontinuation of study drugs. So fairly typical for those that we've seen across the uh, immunotherapy studies and no new concerns. So moving from the adjuvant setting to the neoadjuvant set setting, uh, the next study that I'd like to discuss is Nadine 2. So this is neoadjuvant. So this is for patients with potentially resectable stage three non-small cell lung cancer without EGFR or ALK uh, mutations. So dissimilar in that it's only stage three, so not the stage one being two that we've seen with the other adjuvant studies that we've discussed so far. And patients were randomized in this study, in a, it's a randomized phase two study in a two-to-one fashion to either receive a combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy with nivolumab and carbotaxel versus carbotaxel alone, each for three cycles. Um, then the patients went on to receive surgery. And for the patients on the chemoimmunotherapy arm, they also received six months of immunotherapy with nivolumab. And it's important to point that out because the previous study that we had reported earlier on this year at AACR, Checkmate 816, had a very similar design, um, although it wasn't, uh, it wasn't only in stage three patients, but there was no adjuvant immunotherapy in that study. So some, some key differences, but really the study um, giving us further information in this very important neoadjuvant arena. So getting to the, 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 the key results, you can see the progression-free survival in the top left-hand curve, and you can see those curves are very widely split with an over 20% difference in the 24-month 24, 24 progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.48. Progression-free survival, 18.3 months for those stage three patients um, uh, on the chemotherapy arm, but not reached for those on the chemoimmunotherapy arm. And really importantly, we've got overall survival 
survival data here. So, of course, it's not, not mature yet, so the median has not been reached for either the chemotherapy or the chemoimmunotherapy arm, but those curves very widely split and hazard ratio 0.4. And importantly, in any new neoadjuvant study, when we come to consider the surgical outcomes, you can see that the R0 rate for patients receiving chemoimmunotherapy was much higher than those receiving chemotherapy alone. So 92% for chemoimmunotherapy versus only 65% for chemotherapy alone. Only 7% of patients on the chemotherapy immunotherapy did not get to definitive surgery compared to about 30% of patients on the chemotherapy arm. And you can see that more patients were downstaged with chemoimmunotherapy, 69% of patients being downstaged compared to only 40% with chemotherapy. So important study, really validating the results that we saw already this year from Checkmate 816, meaning that chemoimmunotherapy really is a game changer for patients with non-small cell lung cancer and is likely to start to change, out, change the, the treatment pathways uh, for our patients in the very near future. Of course, we don't have approval for these uh, regimens just yet, but I think it's probably not long before that's going to happen. So the final study that I'm just going to touch on in the last minute is a negative study, but I think it's a really important study for us to uh, update ourselves on the outcomes from. So many, many of you will have been involved in canopy studies, both in the adjuvant setting and also in the metastatic setting. The two metastatic studies that have reported previously, unfortunately, were negative. Um, but this is the adjuvant study, which was again looking at patients with resected stage 2A to 3B and non-small cell lung cancer in this case, and patients were randomized um, having had chemotherapy or not to either receive canaconumab or placebo essentially for one year. And you can see from that disease-free survival curve at the bottom, unfortunately, despite having shown some really impressive results in some of the cardiovascular studies in terms of the incidence of lung cancer, unfortunately, those results have not related to benefits for our patients in the adjuvant setting or indeed as previous studies have shown in the metastatic setting. Of course, um, Charlie Saunton did uh, discuss some very interesting um, data on um, the development of lung cancer and the initiation promotion model. And it may well be that canaconumab, although it's not important in metastatic in the adjuvant setting, there may be some other roles for that um, molecule in um, uh, prevention. So take-home messages. Um, adjuvant ozimertinib is here to stay. Uh, it's standard of care for us. We still have some relatively immature data, and we need to be thinking about how we follow our patients up, particularly with regard to scanning, because um, there are some changes in those curves from the three-year time point when the drug stops. So it's here to stay, and it certainly gives us some clinically meaningful benefits in terms of uh, um, disease relapse. Adjuvant atezolizumab in patients following chemotherapy for stage two and stage three disease with high PDL1 has shown some really impressive improvements in disease-free survival. Median overall survival not yet reached, but is the standard of care. The PEARL study has demonstrated similar disease-free survival benefits across the PDL1 groups, not reaching statistical significance in the PDL1 high, but probably due to overperformance of the placebo arm. And in terms of neoadjuvant treatment, the Nadim 2 study validating the study results that we saw from Checkmate on 816 earlier on in the year and really identifying this as a key area of treatment in the future.
And finally, canicumumab for patients with completely resected adult non-small cell lung cancer does not improve outcomes. And I think I'm just at the 15 minutes, so thank you very much for your attention. Um, that's, uh, you, you've kept up the gold winning position that we are absolutely bang on 15 minutes. Thank you very much indeed. Um, got various questions coming through to remind people if you want to ask a question, uh, put it in the browser. If that's not working, I don't know, maybe try the chat. I don't know. Um, but we love, we love questions. So we're going to move on, at least I'm going to move on, uh, to my bit. Uh, I'm not going to introduce myself because I've done that already. That's a picture of my hospital. The London bus for you. Um, so I'm going to talk about ESMO and well lung advanced non-small cell lung cancer. I'm actually just going to talk about ESMO. I'm not going to do anything from world lung because I've only picked out four different studies and I think it's best to know, as my colleagues have shown, um, that to know a lot about a small number of subjects it's better to know a little about lots. So here are my disclosures. So here are my fantastic four. We've got Ipsos, UK-led study, plenary session on the last day. Professor Ming Lee was, was uh, waving the flag and it was brilliant, metaphorically. We've got Codebreak 200 for Satorosib and KRAS G12C, the big phase three study, also in the plenary session. We've got Disciple, just a really interesting academic study from uh, France, which I think answers, answer, asks so many questions, doesn't quite answer them. And then we've got Insight too which gives us insight into what we should do when osimertinib stops working. So the first one is Ipsos. As I say, this is a study uh, presented by Professor Ming Lee, again, friend of BTOG, regular attender, um, in a really important patient group. These are the guys in non-small cell lung cancer who aren't well enough to have platinum-based chemo. And any of us who sit in a lung oncology clinic uh, will see a very large number of patients in this situation. So are they platinum ineligible either because they're PS2 or 3, or they're better PS, but there is a reason why, because of comorbidities, they cannot have a platinum. And they're randomized either to a tezilizumab, that PDL1 inhibitor in blue at the top, or chemo in red. And the two you could use was either vinorelbin or gemcitabine. And those really continued until progressive disease. And the primary endpoint was overall survival really relevant uh, in this patient group. So what is the headline news? The headline news in this study is that if you are platinum ineligible, your overall survival is better if you get single agent atezidizumab compared to chemotherapy. Tezo in the blue, chemo in the red. You'll see at the very beginning, around the three-month mark, there is a crossover of lines. You see the chemo lines are a wee bit higher. We've seen this quite a lot with immunotherapy versus chemotherapy trials. So we do always have to be careful when giving immunotherapy because at the very beginning in some patients, chemo is better. But beyond that, a TZO wins with a hazard ratio of 0.78. In other words, a 28% reduction in the chances of death. Secondary endpoint in the bottom right-hand corner there, overall response rate was twice in that of uh, chemotherapy in the ATZO arms, almost 17% with ATZO. And the duration of response, again, double in the uh, immuno compared to chemo. So that is really interesting data, I think. Can we pick out one group who does better or not better? The answer is no, not really. If you run your eyes down the, uh, the forest plot here, you will see that all the little triangles are just to the left, the dotted line, meaning in every patient group, by and large, there is benefit 
of a TSO over chemo. And the ones I'll particularly draw your eye to is the bottom right hand corner where it says PDL1. This is not PDL1 dependent. Your PDL1 negatives deriving as much benefit as your PDL1 positives, which I think is a surprise. Ditto presence of brain metastases um, towards the top of the right hand side. And no difference in histology, bottom left, and no difference according to performance status. So across the board, the benefit is there in the subgroups. Obviously, what's really important here is going to be um, quality of life. And there's a lot of quality of life data shown. This is not all of it. I've just happened to pick out one or two. And we can see that at tezulizumab in blue, you have an improvement in social functioning on the right, cognitive function on the left, and general role functioning in the top left compared to chemotherapy. And I think anyone who's thrown around chemotherapy will know that's not a huge surprise. So not only are we getting that overall survival benefit, you're actually also getting quality of life benefit. And that's going to be essential because let's remind ourselves, these are PS23 patients or those platinum ineligible, so almost certainly got other medical comorbidities. So I think this is fascinating. Um, what are my thoughts on Ipsos? My thoughts are this is a very relevant patient group. We see it all the time as a patient group not represented in standard clinical trials. It's a pragmatic UK study. I absolutely applaud Minley for leading this. What a great idea. This is a kind of study we do really well. It met its primary endpoint, big thing, um, uh, although chemotherapy does do better initially. There are some things for us to be mindful of. Um, the contraindications of platinum, a little bit uh, unclear still. I mean, I think we want to see the, the, the paper. What do we really mean by platinum ineligible? Are the chemotherapies used really the best control arm? So you'll notice that, for example, pemetrexid wasn't included in there. Do we feel that VIN and GEM are the best ones? There was, of course, when you think about it, of course, a patient bias towards PDO1 negatives and lows. And that's, I think, because the PDL1 highs were getting immunotherapy anyway. Um, and we have to think about cost. So, vinorelbin, gemcitabine, cheap as chips, um, atezolizumab, not as cheap as chips. So, although we can see an overall survival benefit and a quality of life benefit, we have to think about the cost implications of that. But I thought this was a really good study. Um, and although it may not necessarily immediately change practice, it doesn't make us think about how we treat our less well patients. The next one is Code Break 200. A lot of excitement about this. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, hype about it. This is the phase three registration study of Satorosib, uh, KRAS inhibitor for G12C patients. You may well be using it already based on Code Break 100. That's a phase two study. This is the phase three randomized study, the first randomized data. To remind you, this is gonna be after chemo and or immuno. Um, but you have to have had chemo and immunology, you, know, you, you, you can't have had uh, only one of those. Um, no active brain mets and randomized one-to-one -one, uh, between Satorosib and the old enemy docetaxel. Just have a look at the bottom where, where I put in the uh, red exclamation marks. So there was a reduced enrollment during this uh, from 650 to 330 patients by the regulators and crossover was permitted. So this does interfere with the results because almost halfway through the study, suddenly things get changed. We've got to bear that in mind when we're thinking about the results. So this was the first data put up, which is the improvement in primary endpoint, which is progression-free survival. And I think this probably didn't surprise that many people because we've seen improvement 
in progression-free survival in the phase two data. So you can see there that the hazard ratio is 0.66. So that's a 34% uh, reduction in the chances of progression. Um, and you can see an improvement in the median there, which is uh, less important, maybe, uh, less impressive, I'm so sorry. Um, they've been a little bit unlucky where the curves come together, but maybe what might be more useful actually, look at that 12 month landmark, 10% versus 20, almost 25% with Satorosib. So an improvement in primary endpoint of progression-free survival. But this to me was perhaps a more relevant slide or a more impactful slide, which is there was not an improvement in overall survival. And they did get a little bit glossed over in it. Um, and I always uh, have a little bit of concern when that's the case. There are a couple of big caveats. Number one, because of that change in patient numbers, this was actually underpowered to achieve, or sorry, to report on, to detect a change in overall survival. And I absolutely get that. Although if you look at the lines there, I don't think there's anything between them. Um, the other thing to say is there was crossover allowed, and on the right-hand side there, I've told you about the crossovers there. So there was a bit of crossover. Of course, crossover is going to hide an overall survival benefit. Um, and then I've also told you the number of patients in the bottom right there who have crossed over 26%, and those who received uh, a G12 inhibitor anyway, another 7.5%. But I think this overall survival, or lack of overall survival benefit, was to me surprising and was certainly disappointing. Uh, what about adverse events in quality of life? Well, it was reported as being well tolerated. I don't think I'd agree with that. I think a 33% grade three or more toxicity, I don't think it's unmanageable, but I think we have to recognize satorosib as a drug where we do have to look at GI and liver toxicity and dose adjust accordingly. And I don't think that's a major issue. You can see the dose interruptions and dose reductions underneath my red box there. But I think to describe it as well, tolerated is probably pushing it a bit far. Um, that being said, very importantly, if we look at global health status, physical functioning, breathlessness, you can see that satorosib is better than docetaxel. And to me, that's a really key piece of data because this is a second or third line treatment. Quality of life is really, really important. So um, yes, it does have side effects, but I think we see, what we can see here is that the impact of those is less on the patient and the patient has a better quality of life. So my thoughts are, well, the good news is confirmatory phase three study. It has met its primary endpoint. And I think it does solidify satorosib as currently a standard of care for relapsed G12C only KRAS mutated lung cancer when patients have had chemo and immunotherapy. But there are some caveats and those caveats are the treatment-related adverse events, predominantly GI and liver. I think docetaxel is a suboptimal control arm. I mean, it's the one they have to use because of the regulatory issues, but really the control arm in the UK would be docetaxel nintedonib, and in places like North America, you would put in ramacirumab along with the docetaxel. So I think the control arm is a bit suboptimal. Those changes in sample size and crossover, they complicated things, and I think the lack of the overall survival is problematic. So I think it's a little bit disappointing, but I think it suggests modest clinical activity and we wait subset data, and I look forward to the combination studies with other agents which are increasingly important now. Disciple is the third study. This is a fantastic French study, an academic study, looking at patients who have advanced non-small cell lung cancer and they receive nivolumab, ipilimumab. And you're thinking, hang on, Tom, why are you talking about this? We don't need this, but bear with me. These guys get six months of niv-ipi, and after six months, um, 
with their disease control, if they are still controlled, they're randomized to either continue near VIPI until progression or to stop and observe. Yes, this is a randomized study looking at how long do you give immunotherapy for. That's why it's an academic study. What you can see looking at the treatment adverse events in the continuation arm in red on the left, you can see the enumerated adverse events are significantly higher than the patients who got six months of treatment stopped and then restarted the immunotherapy when they progressed the stop and go arm. So your adverse events are better. But what's really interesting is your progression-free survival is better. And there's a hint of overall survival on the right as being better as well. Yes, that's right. If you get six months of combination immuno stop and then restart when you progress, your progression-free survival is better uh, and overall survival may well be better than patients who have it continuously. Now, there was a big problem with this study, which is that NIVIP is not licensed in Europe and therefore the, uh, the pharmaceutical company who was funding the study, sponsoring the study, I'm so sorry, um, withdrew from the study because of that licensing issue. So the study stopped early and we don't have a clear answer about PFS and OS. But I think it's fascinating because it's an exemplar of academic studies commercial studies won't do this. There is a strong signal within the findings, which is that shorter treatment and restarting is not detrimental. In fact, it's safer and it glimpses the stop-start approach. But that early uh, termination is a problem. And we do need a confirmatory phase three study with a licensed combination. And guess what? Our French colleagues are ahead of the game. They've got the dial study going, which basically is the same as this, but with PEM, PEM, platinum, as we are probably more familiar with. So watch out for that study. I think this is fascinating. My last study I'm going to discuss is INSIGHT2. This is you know, EGFR mutated lung cancer, patients on first-line osimertinib who develop MET amplification, which you can see in the top, is about 15 to 30% of patients progressing on osimertinib. They have the MET amplification checked either by NGS or FISH, and if they have it, they get tipotinib added in to their osimertinib. You can ignore the tripotinib monotherapy arm, the answer is it doesn't work. So TPO plus Aussie in this single arm phase two study. Um, the primary outcome is, is uh, response rate and we're waiting for uh, survival data. I don't have any survival data for you, but look at the response rate there on the uh, plus uh, people on follow up more than uh, nine months. Overall response rate is 54%. Um, and I think that shows a really interesting suggestion of clinical activity. For those of us who've been giving tipotinib for Metex or 14 skipping, which is now available in the UK, you'll be familiar with the peripheral edema and the diarrhea that you get with this drug. And that's what you see with the TPO and Aussie combination. And there doesn't appear to be a significant uh, additional uh, complicated side effect profile when you add TPO to Aussie. So, Interesting, amongst the first data targeting first-line Aussie resistance, 54% response rate. Yeah, I know it's single arm. I know we need more patients. I know we need more data. This suggests to me there's activity and it's practical and feasible. I can imagine adding in the tipotinib to my osimertinib, where some of the other approaches at the moment seem to be quite a long way away from where we are. Um, but we do need to have survival data progression-free survival, overall survival, I think that will be coming. We need randomized data, or do we? Do we really want to take on a phase three study? Do we really want to wait months, years to get the answer? And the other thing we can note is that giving to positive alone is not an active combination. 
and that is the last of my slides. So I'm going to move on to uh, here and I'm going to look at the questions uh, that have come in and I'm going to bring my other colleagues back into the room, metaphorically. Okay, so. Don't take any breath. I talked to David. I hope David, uh, David Baldwin, I hope you're there. Your camera's off, so I can't see you. I hope you're kind of poised. Let's wait to be there. There you are. Excellent. So, David, we're, we're going to start with you because uh, you went first in the first place. Um, question about family history and lung cancer. So, not something we focus on very much in lung cancer. Uh, we ask a lot of it as oncologists in breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Given the Taiwanese study, uh, what's your view on family history in lung cancer? Should we be looking at it differently? What do we already know about family history in lung cancer? Well, it's, it's not a surprise, actually, in that most of the uh, risk prediction models that we, we look at that um, have look at family history, the family history is always an independent factor. So it's not, a, it's not strong and you have to be really careful about confounding due to, to smoking when you're looking at it as an independent risk factor, but it is there. And the big problem with any data collection uh, when you're informing risk models is, is the extent to which the uh, data is collected accurately and or not. And um, certainly even, even then, uh, some of the risk prediction models, what the LLP version uh, two and three, uh, as one example, shows that, you know, family history is included in that. Uh, so, so I think um, it, it's there. It would probably be even better if you took a really careful history. Um, uh, and therefore, um, maybe the Taiwanese data does have rather better family history data, but it was difficult to, to get that out of their, their studies. So I'm not, it's not surprising. I mean, I think it is something we should be aware of. Um, as I said, you've got to be careful because you have a family of people who've uh, um, maybe come from a socially deprived group and lots of smoking in the family, lots of secondhand tobacco smoke, all of those things going on together. Um, so it's a little bit careful, be a bit careful about this, but to be honest with you, the, the most of the, most of the, the multivariable models that I've seen that have looked at this in detail have shown that that's an independent factor. Thank you very much. I'm going to move on to David Wallaby. I'm going to come back to you, David Baldwin. Um, David, obvious question for the for Japanese and American studies, lots of people are asking is, does it change practice? Directed at you, does it change your practice? In your next week's MDT, someone comes in stage 1A lung cancer, are you going to be altering your recommendation for the patient's treatment? And if so, why? And if not, why? I've been doing uh, segmentectomy for stage 1 lung cancer for 15 years. So no, we do 85% of my lung cancer resections are robotic segmentectomies. So that won't change. What I have now already, the first list when I got back from Vienna, I did two robotic segmentectomies and one robotic wedge resection. Um, look, you ask for evidence, you want evidence-based medicine. Uh, the problem is with positive trials, if it, it contradicts what you believe, you find reasons not to do it. This is a game changer. Yeah. This really is. It will, it will hit surgeons. They've taken a long time to learn to do vaslobectomy. They think they're very clever. Why aren't we fantastic? Oh dear. Now we've got to learn something else. This will be the problem that surgeons will find reasons to do what they like doing. And uh, it's difficult to do a segmentectomy. It's not difficult to do a wedge. And this is where that's, I think, the big message. 
is that we can do therapeutic wedges now, uh, not just in people with poor lung function. Uh, and that's a big change. That is a game changer. That, that, if you think about it, a lot of these people have had VATS frozen section, then gone on to a lobectomy. Well, they don't need that. Excellent. I like, I like that. Um, again, I'm going to come back to you in a minute. Yvonne, I'm going to move on to Adora. Um, it's a question from me, actually. Um, I thought those DFS curves were coming together. And I thought they were coming together at three years. That says to me, you're not preventing anything. You're just delaying it. Um, does that make you more or less likely to give osimertinib adjuvantly if you're concerned you're just delaying and not preventing? Yeah, I think it's a good point. And I think when you look at Sanjay, as you know, did a lovely discussion um, at ESMO and had some nice lines drawn on those curves, for, which particularly for the stage two and stage threes, did look like the gradient changed at three years when the osimertinib stopped. Um, so there is clearly a concern about, you know, when, how much drug is enough? Is three years enough? Do we need to be are we in the situation that we were with breast cancer many years ago when actually adjuvant hormones then had to be extended in duration as the data came through? So I think there is a question about how much drug is enough. But then the second part of the question, which is probably the more important part, is is it the right thing to give adjuvant osimertinib? Well, yes, it is. I think if you ask any patient whether they would like to have their disease-free survival curve split like that, yes, they would. They don't want their cancer to come back and they don't want to get brain metastasis. So I think there's some really clear reasons why, yes, the treatment is the right thing. We have some issues around what is actually happening with longer follow-up. Are those curves coming together? Does this mean that we need to be doing something different? Does our follow-up need to be more um, nuanced at that stopping point um, rather than us doing scans six monthly or 12 monthly? Is there an argument, particularly for those higher stage patients, to be having really much more careful follow-up between years three and years five? That's a question that I think we have to be asking ourselves now. Um, and then there's the other, the bigger question about, you know, should we be doing um, treatment for longer? Thank you. Uh, David Baldwin, back to you about the Taiwanese study. Question here about the detection rate, 2.6%, which seems so high. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is, is this reflecting the unique patient population there? Um, is it reflecting lung cancer is always going to be there? We, we just don't realize regardless of the patient you look at. What's your, your take on it compared to the, um, the, the screening studies in, in the smoking populations that we've seen so far? I think it's really difficult without knowing the, re the detail of what is actually going on. Um, because that on the one hand, it could be that they are identifying potentially lethal disease uh, very early on through uh, a combination of um, the, the biology of the cancer being slightly less aggressive and therefore a greater proportion of the screen detected cancers being indolent, but nevertheless still lethal in the long term. Or it could be that this is all overdiagnosis, uh, and that is the major concern because when you see see people classifying their resections as cancer when we wouldn't actually say they were cancers, then that is clearly a difference in the way we would report things in a study. Uh, and so, so I don't. I, I mean, I wish I knew the answer to this. What what I was very impressed with was the Taiwanese. Um, population data, which looked at the 
diagnosis rate amongst early stage disease versus the diagnosis rate of late stage disease. And, you know, screening works, one of the surrogates, it's not a very good surrogate, but one of the surrogates for screening efficacy is a reduction in late stage disease. Hmm. It's not a complete uh, hmm. surrogate. And that, that's um, the, one of the problems with the potential problems with the, with the Galeri test, in fact. But, um, but actually, we don't see a reduction in late stage disease in the Taiwanese population, despite the screening activity that's been going on, which does make you worry about overdiagnosis. So I really think it, 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 time will tell. You know, the studies will be ongoing. The, the bigger national screening uh, program will, will also be important to, to evaluate. Um, and, and I think it's, it's really a, a, about what, what we really believe is going on. And I think people like David, who've maybe gone to, to see, you know, the operating practice of, of these patients, uh, on these patients, and what they're actually taking out is probably most relevant. I think the actual on, on the ground evidence, and I've heard from a, a number of different surgeons about what they think about that. Thank you. Um, David, you were mentioning David Waller, you were mentioning earlier uh, sugmentectomy, you, you've been doing a lot of those. Um, I think you said in the, in the Japanese study it was found to be less advantageous than people thought in terms of lung function. Is that what you're saying? Is that a surprise? Were, were you call, caught out by that or, or did it kind of reinforce what you thought? And if so, why do you think it was less advantageous than people hoped? Well, you could base it on the incorrect assumption that all of the lung segments have equal function which of course they don't. And for 25 years, we've been resecting emphysematous lung tissue to improve lung function. And the more emphysematous lung tissue you take out, the better the lung function. Now, surprisingly, the Japanese, I, I raised this in one international meeting with Asamura, and they haven't thought about it because they don't do volume reduction surgery in Japan. But I suspect, that obviously, if you take uh, the whole of the right upper lobe out and it's emphysematous, you get a better FEV1 improvement than just taking out segment three, for example, and leaving the um, emphysematous segments in. So uh, to qualify that, I wouldn't always do a segmentectomy. I would, my aim is to preserve as much functioning lung tissue as possible whilst adhering to oncological principles. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't do a, a unisegment of the right upper lobe if it was all emphysematous, I'd do an upper lobectomy. So uh, I'm not sure that lung function is a very good parameter. Um, it's uh, possibly more important how much vascular tissue you preserve, and certainly in the lower lobe. Um, and you take out too much of the lower lobe and you will increase the pulmonary vascular resistance. You send the people into heart failure. Eventually, they've all got COPD and more of their functions in the lower lobe. So it may be that the best use of segmentectomy is in lower lobe disease because they're more, that's better to preserve. Whereas, as I say, right upper lobe, you know, you're probably better off without it if you've got emphysema. Yeah, yeah. Wedge resection is diff different though, of course. Wedge, you can do wedge on anybody, really. This is the big thing that you, you know, when you get in the MD2, all these patients not fit for a lobectomy, good. We just want to do a wedge. Now that could change, that's a big game changer. But make sure you take your nodes out, don't just do a wedge. Well, yes, and that is very important. It can't be just a quick and dirty wedge. You've got to do a staging operation at the same time because they may benefit these fancy drugs you give in adjuvant settings, yeah. with all these funny limamabs and all those sort of yeah. drugs. Well, Talking you about need which, to know if you've got no positive disease, so there you are. Talking about which, Dr. Summers, nothing's ever done quick and dirty at the Christie. I'm sure it's done meticulously and cleanly. Um, the Canopy A study, 
uh, bad luck or bad science. Uh, we've had a series of canopy studies, they're all negative, very disappointing. Some people say this should never have been done. It was on a premise of a, a chance finding in a cardiac study. And other people say, you had to look into it. You had this study showing in cardiac, where if you gave canikimumab, many fewer people uh, develop lung cancer. What's your take? Bad luck or bad science? Um, so I think it's bad science, isn't it? Well, my, my view is that it's bad science, but you could not ignore the data from those cardiovascular studies. It was really impressive data. I guess the, um, the, the, the point is that we went a step too far without understanding um, the basic science. Um, and I'm not sure that it's completely died. You know, are we going to see some lung cancer prevention studies emerging at some point? I don't know, but that might be the role for it very much well look we are we are a minute from time and i'd just like to thank all my excellent speakers uh, david Bourne and david waller and yvonne summers for joining me and giving their time just say to people when you get asked to do these talks by btok it's the email that's a bit of a heart sink because you've got to go to the meeting and then you've got to try to remember what on earth you heard and then pull it all together so it is no mean feat and i'm very grateful for them doing it i just wonder if our av colleagues could put up our, our closing slide because i wanted to tell people about uh, BTOG 2023, which has been announced today, is in April next year, and it's in Belfast. So we have a new location, which is very exciting. And I'd encourage you to uh, have a look on the website and obviously book out the whole of April in preparation uh, for BTOG 2023, um, because it's gonna be very exciting. Before that, however, we've got other in-person events uh, we have the BTOG Non-Smoking Lung Cancer Central Update. This is in collaboration with the Roos Strauss Foundation. Um, and this is something we're very excited about. It's in a couple of weeks' time, which I need to pay attention to because I'm going to be speaking at it, so I better start writing my slides, um, at uh, Lincoln's Infield. And we're delighted to work with our friends and colleagues at Ruth Strauss Foundation. And then in early December, just before Christmas, um, uh, Riyadh Shah is... Um, if just go back one slide, that's OK. Um, Ria Shah is leading on our mesothelioma essential update with mesothelioma UK and our friends there. That's the Cavendish Conference Centre in London. There is so much going on in mesothelioma at the moment um, uh, that I think this is such a pertinent study. So moving on to our last slide, if that's OK, uh, again, to remind you of the excitement of um, the BTOG 2023. Uh, I'll just move the slide forward. Uh, there we go, in Belfast at the International Conference Centre. Uh, there, we've known about it for a while, but we weren't allowed to say anything. Um, and I've had a look at the map of the ICC. It looks absolutely fantastic. And I think this will be the high point of 2023, if I may say. So thank you very much, everyone, for joining me. Thank you very much again to my speakers um, and to our sponsors of today's uh, event. And we look forward to catching up with you, hopefully, at our next webinars. Thank you very much. <laughs>